Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Uh, Hey, my name is Christopher. Um, A lot of people know me as Topher. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you yet, hello. I am the campus, uh, campus pastor. I don't know. Who am I? (laughs) Who am I? Um, I am the connections pastor here at Area 10 Church. Uh, I am glad that you all are here in person or if you're watching at home or in the future. Hello, and I am glad to be here as well. Uh, A few years back, the magazine Vulture had an article entitled, Is There Something Psychologically Unhealthy About Being a Fan? And they interviewed quite a few different psychologists to just kind of get a good gauge and a good idea. And it was essentially an overview of how fandom has gone from really idle interest and things that we just enjoy to something a little bit deeper and a little bit darker. You don't have to look far, right, to see like intense fandom gone awry. I know I don't have to look far from my own life. I could think of one of the most um, all-encompassing arguments that my wife and I had was over the show Lost. Um, I love the show Lost. I still love the show Lost. And it was the season three finale. And at the end of it, I was like, oh my gosh, that was incredible. What's going to happen? And she's like, oh my gosh, it's not even that good of a show. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I can't even look at you. I don't know how to interact with you. Now granted, I'm a very passionate person. I have very strong I say passionate, it's really opinionated. I have lots of strong opinions. I have things that I'm a big, big, big fan of. I'm a huge fan of Marvel movies, okay? I think they are far and away better than DC movies, especially DC movies with Zack Snyder's name attached to it. Now, I'm sure that Zack Snyder is a very nice gentleman. I just don't like his movies. I love the Harry Potter books. I think they're incredible. I tried to read Twilight. I wanted it to end. It was like trying to read a 14-year-old girl's diary. It was not a good fit. I don't understand the appeal at all. My love, my love for Disney and Disney parks is well documented. (laughs) To the point that when someone says, I just don't get it. I don't like Disney. I have no idea why you'd want to go to Disneyland or Disney World. There's a part of me inside that goes, yeah, we can't be friends. Like, I I I don't know how to do this. I have film franchises that I love, Indiana Jones, Star Wars. Um, I, I could have very intense, intense debates on why I think the New Orleans Saints are one of the best teams ever in all of the NFL, even though their record does not show that. I, I can have arguments as to why I think the Foo Fighters are one of the best bands of all time. I could talk about all kinds of things with great passion, because that's what we do, right? We get these interests, we get these things that we're just like, oh man, yeah, this is... This is my thing. And then when people don't like those same things, we get a little, we get a little stirred up, right? I can't, I'm assuming it's not just me. Hopefully it's not just me. That would, be, that would be unfortunate. But I think all of us share that, that there's these things, there's these people, there's these ideas that we get so amped up about that we dig our heels in. And if we come up against someone who doesn't appreciate the same things or doesn't see the value in them, like we really, like we want to fight. Like we're like, okay, All right, let's Mortal Kombat this. I'm going to make you see my point. And if you don't, we're done. We're done. Relationships continually are broken over the dumbest stuff. 
There was an article that I just read in Psychology Today late last year that talked about one of the leading reasons for divorce are team rivalries and binge cheating. So those couples that watch shows together, when one person in that couple goes and watches a few episodes ahead and the other person doesn't, it causes such discord in relationships now that be, and some of you are like, see, stop watching ahead of me. Stop that. Like, that's a thing. It's not hard to, to look in the media, to look at what's going on around us and, and hear about people like sobbing uncontrollably at a Harry Styles or Taylor Swift or BTS concert. It's not unknown to know someone who has thrown undergarments on a stage at a rock concert. It doesn't take much to hear about stories where people have resorted to violence in movie theaters or comic book conventions. It's all too normal that brawls break out at sporting events and even political events nowadays because when people disagree with us, we don't know how to handle it that well anymore. I think this is seen most clearly in politics right now, which I know is a fun thing that everyone always wants to talk about is politics. Maybe that was God saying, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Look, if you find a supporter of president or former president Donald Trump and find a supporter of former president Barack Obama, you're actually going to find a lot of similarities between the two of them. You may not, it may not be in the ways that you think it's going to be, but you're going to find a lot of similarities and it could be a little jarring sometimes. I have two such friends like this whom I love dearly, but boy, talking politics with them gives me a migraine because They've moved beyond just appreciating a candidate or a political party. And they moved into this place of kind of blind adulation. The foot soldiers to a war that no one realizes that they're fighting. People have made politics into this weird game. Not a cooperative game where we have to work together to solve problems, but it's win or lose. And you're either the heroes and the villains. And depending on which side you're on defines who's the heroes and the villains. And we see political parties and we see politicians or we see music stars or actors or actresses and sports stars or ideas and we get so wrapped up that they, our entire identity begins to be shaped by who they are, by what it is. And we stop having objective thoughts. We stop seeing clearly. We stop asking hard questions, and we make everything win or lose. We look past things that we know are wrong, that we know are damaging, that we know are unhelpful to ourselves, our relationships, and our culture, because we want to be right, because we want to win. Now, we've been in this sermon series, Life, Liberty, and Limitations, which I love, and we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians over um, really this year so far. And we've talked about a lot of the similarities between the Roman culture and the Corinthian culture back then and Western culture today. One of the things we haven't really talked about is the idea of obsession and idolatry. The Roman Empire, the area of Corinth, and even the Corinthian church, they idolized first and foremost their freedom and their rights which doesn't sound that different to me for us today. The irony of that, though, is this elevation of our freedom and rights. It's this obsession with our freedom and our rights, this desire to be on the winning side, to be correct, and to have our opinion be the most important has actually made us prisoners 
to so many other things. And we have sacrificed so much at the altar of things that don't matter. One gentleman put it this way, in the West, it seems that we are brainwashed into thinking that clinging to our personal rights and freedoms while striving after things is our ticket to happiness. In reality, it's making us miserable. I don't think it takes much research to find out how true that is. So today we're going to talk about idolatry. We're going to take a look at how we tend to take good things, things that seem innocuous, things that are just interesting or things that we like, and make them into our everything. But to understand idolatry, we have to have a good grasp of what idolatry is, of what an idol is. And oftentimes when you hear the word idol, you probably think of like a little statue or maybe a little altar of some sort, maybe even a lucky charm of rabbit's foot or anything like that. And those can be types of idols, but there's a lot more to it. In a nutshell, an idol is anything that is more important to you than Christ. I want you to have that in your head for the rest of your life. Write it on a piece of paper, put it in your phone, text it to yourself, email it to yourself. An idol is anything that is more important to you than Christ. It could be people, it could be things, it could be ideas, it could be emotions, it's anything. And here's the dirty little secret that no one wants to talk about, we all have them. We all have them, and oftentimes we don't even realize it. We're going to dig into chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to start with verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, this is one of those scriptures that you could read and go, what? Huh? Yeah, I get it. So let me backtrack a little bit. What Paul is addressing right here to the Corinthian church is he's reminding them of their history, of their lineage, and he's specifically speaking of the story of Exodus. And this is a story that a lot of us have heard, whether this is your first time in a church ever or you've grown up in the church, odds are you've heard about Moses, you've heard about Pharaoh and the deliverance of the plagues, you know, the, uh, the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments. This is what Paul is referring to when he is talking about, or when he's talking to the Corinthian church. And he's reminding the Corinthian church of this for a really important reason, because he wants them to learn from their mistakes. He wants them to learn from the mistakes that were made previously because what happened, this was a time that God literally brought deliverance, brought freedom into the lives of the Israelites. And they saw miracle after miracle. They literally wandered the desert and followed a a pillar of cloud for direction and then at night a pillar of fire and they saw the Red Seas parted. And then Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. And in 40 days' time, all that goes down the toilet. And the Israelites go, no, no, we don't like this. We want to do what we want to do. And so they moved from a place of gratitude to ungratefulness. They moved to this place, really, of entitlement. As if God was expected and required to do whatever they said and give them whatever their heart's desire was, whatever they wanted. Again, it's not an uncommon issue. 
We see it in the book of Exodus. We see it thousands of years later as Paul is addressing it. We see it now today, this collection of things that we have in our lives that we have made more important than Christ. This reality where we chase after everything we want, every shiny trinket, everything that we think is going to give us hope or purpose or value or peace, and we just keep chasing after everything we want and chasing after everything we want and chasing after everything we want and ignore everything that we actually need. This is what the Israelites were doing. This is what the Corinthian church was doing. This is what we today still do. How easy is it for you to move to a place of ungratefulness? To move into that place of entitlement? Because I'll tell you, for me, it is really, really easy. Because that's the, that's the cultural blanket that we kind of snuggle under, isn't it? Like that, that blanket that says, you know what, the customer is always right. Oh gosh, I hate that saying so much. Listen, okay, I was, I was a general manager of a retail store for years. And my particular store in Nashville, my district manager and I would butt heads a lot. Our personalities were different. And he would come in my store and his name was also Christopher, which made it weird and awkward. He'd come in and he goes, listen, Christopher. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Man, your metrics are great. Thank you. We've been working hard. Your team, man, it's just so solid. Yeah, we've... we've try to do a lot to boost morale. And, you know, you've got a great reputation in the, in the community. Like, you have these great partnerships with designers. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's great. And he goes, but we keep getting these emails every now and again from, from a few customers that say, I am so unhappy because I didn't get what I wanted. You got to remember, the customer is always right. And instinctually, I was always like, nuh-uh. No, they are right until they're wrong, okay? Like, that is not, no, they're not always right. Like, that, that's just not a thing. And I, this particular customer, the last time he did this, I remember she had purchased a table like six years prior before I was even the GM of this store. And in that time, they had moved four times, they had had a bunch of kids, and there was cracks, and there's markers, and she goes, I don't understand why you can't give me a new table. But that was the mentality. Well, the customer is always right. I should get what I want. Isn't, and that's the culture we live in, right? I mean, how many videos have we seen of Karen's gone wild? And Karen's, I am so sorry because all the Karen's I know are lovely, wonderful people. Or the male version, are they Chad's? I don't know. But like all these videos on social media that we see of people losing their minds because they figure, hey, if I'm just loud enough and if I'm just badgering enough, then I'll get what I want. And, or they'll go a different route. You know what? I bet I could be super manipulative and overly nice to get what I want. We are constantly trying to figure out how to get what we want. We go to places like Chipotle and Blaze Pizza, partly because their food is good, unless you get a stomach bug. Um, but mostly, think about it. We get to dictate exactly what's going to go in our burrito or on our pizza without ever actually having to do the work. It's great. It is the most American thing in the world. We get to outsource the hard part and enjoy what we want. How often have we heard or how have you said yourself, don't tell me what I can and can't say. I have the right to do whatever I want. I'm an American. Well, cool, me too. One of the best things about freedom is that it's freedom and we get to have choice and we get to experience the joys of freedom. But man, freedom can be a real big pain in the tuchus. It could be such a big 
curse. And we see this time and time again. Look at our culture and how tribalized it has become. Because we think if we're loud enough, then we'll get what we want. But nothing ever changes. All it does is is it attracts other loud people. So now you have a loud mob versus another loud mob. And no one's actually listening to each other. No one's actually caring for one another. Nothing is actually getting done. We're all just yelling at each other. And you know why? Because we've taken God at a first position. It's kind of the big theme throughout 1 Corinthians, and we've talked about this a couple different times in different sermons. When you take God out of first position, everything else gets out of alignment. Idols, they come in many forms. Some that you think of, things like money, sex, and power. But sometimes they come in forms that you don't expect. Your emotions, your opinion, your political persuasion, even good causes. Idols come in so many different forms and can capture our attention and hearts in so many different ways that we don't even realize it. And we miss the fact that, listen, idols are never satisfied. They always demand more of you. And you will always have to sacrifice more and more at the altar of whatever your idols are to appease it until until finally it consumes you and destroys you. Kyle Eidelman in his book, Gods at War, says, Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all others come from. So if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with, eventually you'll find that underneath it is a false god. What you are searching for and chasing after reveals the god that is winning the war on your heart. And make no mistake, there is a war going on for your heart and your mind and your soul. Paul continues, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that that sentence, rose up to play, is a euphemism. And I'm not going to go into the details of that euphemism. But the whole concept was is that in that 40-day period when Moses goes, goes to get the Ten Commandments, even though they've experienced all these blessings, even though they've experienced this freedom, even though they've experienced provision and seen miracles, they decided, you know what? We're just going to give in to every base desire we have so that we can make ourselves feel good in this moment. Paul continues, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Again, learn from their mistakes. And how many times have we heard that in our lives, right? Learn from other people's mistakes. Learn from my mistakes. And what really happens? In one ear and out the other. Or it'll go in and we'll go, yeah... But that won't happen to me, won't it, though? (laughs) What is it about us that makes us think that we have to experience the pain and the trauma of hurt and failure to learn a lesson? Why is it so hard for us to learn from the mistakes of others? And Paul is is like shaking with his words, the, the Corinthian church and us today, like learn from other people's mistakes. And he ends this section with saying, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands... Uh, take, take heed lest he fall, meaning anyone with breath in their lungs, recognize the fact that you have the capability 
and the potential and the propensity to make idols and elevate them above Christ. And when that happens, you will fall. You will fail. You will be miserable because you will be consumed by things that were never meant to receive your worship. In preparation for this message, I was reading a lot of different stuff. And I kept coming back to this question. What is it about us that makes us create idols? Like, why do we create them? And I, and I wrestled back and forth, and, and my, my wife, Leanne, she is such a good um, clearinghouse for me because she, she she's, I mean, well, she's awesome, but she just thinks in a, in a way that sometimes I miss things. And, and we were talking yesterday, and I was like, well, you know, we, we create idols. We take these different things, and we make them the most important. She goes, but yeah, but what about the people that, like, that's all they know? And it kind of unlocks something for me. Like, you know, there are those idols that we have that we don't even realize we have because they are literally all we've ever known. Maybe it's because of, a, of the family we were born into or the community we were born into. Maybe it's because of the country we live in. And then it got me thinking even more that there are idols that we take hold of really as a means to protect ourselves because we, we experience hurt and we experience pain and we figure out how can we put armor on to protect ourselves so that we could live this life. And those things that we think are good become our everything. And even those become our idols. So I kept wrestling with this question of why do we create idols? And, I, and it really comes down to two things. The first is this. We were made to worship. I mean, we were created. Literally, we are created to worship. Ingrained in all of us, in our DNA, is a desire to put our affections and our praise and our affinity towards God. But we have freedom. We have freedom. Which means we get to choose who or what we worship. And so we find everything in the world that we think we want. And we'll chase after everything in the world that we think we want. And that's what we worship. And we fail at worshiping the one thing that we actually need. And I think the reason that happens is because of, of really the second reason we create idols. We really like to be in control. Understand that idolatry is really misaligned worship. Meaning it is giving your head, heart, and mind to things that were never created to have that attention, to have that affection, to have that worship. When I was talking with my daughter about this message, she was really proud about this, by the way. She said, you know, it sounds like it seems to be that you're looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. And then she like, does this little like mic drop move. And I was like, oh, no, that's actually really good. That, that's exactly what it is. We are looking for fulfillment constantly in all the wrong places. It, it boggles my mind that in, in 40 days' time, after everything that the Israelites saw, they got to a point where they tell Aaron, Moses' brother, hey, we want you to make us a golden calf. It's essentially them saying, look, we're tired of waiting. We want to take things into our own hands. And that's exactly what they did. Psalm says, seek first the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. We can't control the kingdom of God. So we don't seek it. We seek out the things that we think we can control. That makes us feel like we are in control. 
And so we take God and we take Christ out of the equation altogether. David Platt says in his book, Radical, we are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. We desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much of it is biblical. And N.T. Wright, one of my favorite philosopher, theologian guys, uh, he says this, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around you. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in in terms of it and treat other people as either their collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch, meaning that our idols are not only destroying our lives, but they're destroying the lives of the people around us. So what do we do with that? How do, we, how do we identify our idols? And maybe you don't want to identify your idols. That, that's, that's, that's a good possibility. The first thing I was thinking of, an easy way to probably identify your idols, is look at your bank account. I bet if you look at your bank account, you'll see pretty quickly what's actually most important to you. Um, or you could look at your schedule, kind of same, same thought process. I wrestled back and forth with like what are some good ways that we can, we can really hone in and identify what our idols are? And I, I, really bo- I think I boiled it down to four questions, and you could, four filters, if you will. The first is this. Do you plan your life around it? All of us plan our lives around things, right? Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's a quest for a spouse. Maybe it's sporting events or hobbies. Um, I think the thing that, that I see most that people plan their lives around is work and career. How much of our lives are planned around our jobs? And not just to make money, that's a part of it. But what I see more than anything is the sense of, sense of validation and achievement that we crave in our workplaces. And our lives become planned around it. It's heartbreaking how many kids that I talk to, how many spouses I talk to who love their parent with everything in them but don't feel like they know them at all. But they got another promotion. They were able to buy a bigger house and have more toys, but they're never around. Which really, I think, speaks to the silent underlying idol that so many of us in the West have. Comfort. We plan our lives around trying to be comfortable. And I want to be super clear. If you're comfortable, that is the most dangerous place for you to be. 
time and time again, it is when we are comfortable that we are most susceptible to making the dumbest decisions we've ever made. But that's what we do. It's baked into the DNA of Western culture. We work hard so we can play hard so we can be comfortable. Listen, you weren't created to be comfortable. And if you're a follower of Christ, you certainly aren't called to be comfortable. You're not called to the American dream. You're called to the kingdom of God. But we keep going over here. Because we think we can be in control. Do you plan your life around it? The second is this. Do you value it more than you value people? Let me be really uh, transparent. One of the idols that I have struggled with my entire life is um, the idol of time. Particularly my time. My personal time. And listen, time on its own, it's not a bad thing, right? It's a good thing. Sometimes you need that time of rest, that reflection, that time of peace, that time to just sit and listen to God and just be refreshed. But sometimes it goes too far. And what I didn't realize for a very long time is that when I was young, I was scared. A lot. And so I figured I have to protect myself all the time. Whether it's from a real threat, a perceived threat, or an imaginary threat, I felt that I had to protect myself. And I came to realize quickly, if I'm by myself, I I don't have to protect myself anymore. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be afraid. And so as I grew up, as I got to college, as I got into ministry, as I started a family, that aspect of my life ruled my life. And my family will be the first ones to tell you how much that made them suffer. It was lost on me that even though that quiet time, that personal time is good, that it's needed, that somehow in my mind I thought, well, I don't need to protect myself from myself. I could be just as damaging as anybody else. Do you plan your life around it? Do you value it more than people? Does it kick up big emotions inside of you? Particularly anger. And listen, anger is never the real emotion. (laughs) That's the presenting emotion. There is always something behind it. But what are those things that just you go from zero to 100 just like that? You just get so angry. That could be pretty telling. And again, we see this a lot in politics, right? It's that tribalism that we see where it's all or nothing. And if you don't agree with me, if you don't see the same thing, then you have no value to me and I want to fight you and I want you to lose because I need to win. That's the mentality. But it's not just politics. We see that across the board. We also see this around good causes. There are things that exist in our culture. Racism. It's real. It exists. Income inequality, it's real. It exists. Those things need to be addressed. Those things need to be dealt with. The people of God need to come in with hope and reconciliation and grace and truth. But what so often happens is that it becomes our everything. The cause becomes our everything. And we just end up being that loud crowd shouting and nothing changes. Because no one wants to listen. 
If all you are is angry and loud and shouting and talking about why everyone else is wrong, even if you're right, it's not going to change anything. Do you plan your life around it? Do you value it more than you value people? Does it kick up big emotions inside of you? And lastly, does it draw you closer to Christ? And I want to add the word actually. Does it actually draw you closer to Christ? The reality is we are idol-making machines as humans, and it doesn't stop once you come into church. The amount of people that I know that have left churches because they're like, oh, I just don't like the music. Well, cool, I'm glad it's about you. I preached at a church in Missouri when I was in college with just the sweetest, warmest, Midwestern folk you'd ever meet. And one Sunday, these two older ladies got into a screaming match because one sat in the other's chair. Apparently, you don't do that. (laughs) We make things inside of the church our everything. Even under the banner of Christ, we still manage to find things to go, well, no, this is the hill I'm going to die on. This is the thing that I'm going to fight for. This is the thing that I'm going to fight about. What? Does it actually draw you closer to Christ? I don't want this to be a bleak message. I don't want this to be a downer. And I know this is probably me being a lot and stuff, which I'm not subtle, if you've met me. Um, I'm, I'm not. I was, telling, I was telling some friends this weekend, one of my mentors told me that I'm as subtle as a battle axe, which is pretty true. Like, I'm just not. I don't know how to be subtle. Subtlety is not my thing. Uh, Paul doesn't want this to be hopeless either, though. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, meaning you're not in this alone. You're not experiencing, you won't experience things that someone else hasn't experienced before you or that won't experience again in the future. You're not on your own. And then it says, God is faithful. Let's just stop there for a second. Can we just rest in those three words for a moment? God is faithful. Our idols, they're not faithful. Our idols aren't going to be the things that give us purpose and peace and meaning and fulfillment. God, God is faithful. In a world in chaos, where we draw battle lines all the time, it is God that is faithful. And Paul says he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You're not alone. The people in this room, the people watching at home, your friends, your family, your co-workers, people that you know, people that you don't know anymore, we are all experiencing the same thing. We are all creating these idols in our lives that are consuming us. But God is faithful. And he says, you're not alone. And there is an escape. And I will be there with you every step of the way. It doesn't matter if you feel broken. It doesn't matter if you feel set and content. It doesn't matter because I matter. I am faithful, and I alone am worthy of your praise. I wanted to leave you with just some real practical steps of dismantling your idols. What does it look like to dismantle our idols? And it's really just two things. The first is this. Lean into biblical spiritual rhythms. 
And that may sound like a pat answer coming from a minister. Okay, whatever. But it's true. The more you focus your heart and mind on Christ, the more you are shaped and developed towards Christ. Those biblical spiritual rhythms, worship, prayer, fasting, silence, confession, journaling, there are so many different aspects of spiritual rhythms that help direct our hearts and minds and souls towards where they are supposed to be. And maybe you don't know what that looks like for you, and maybe you need resources. If that's the case, by all means, shoot me an email. Topher at area10church.com, I will give you resources. I'll connect with Rachel this week, and we'll make sure to put something on our social media page that lists a few different resources that if you're interested in digging into those spiritual rhythms to begin dismantling your idols, I want to be able to give you as much as we can. But that's number one. The second is this, ask for help. Man, does that go against the American dream. We are taught in this country to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be a trailblazer. Go explore. Find your way. Do what you need to do. Don't ask for help. Don't expect help. You do it on your own. And God's like, that's not how you're designed. That's not how I made you. Ask for help. First, I would say, ask ask God for help. Pray, God, I don't know what the idols are in my life. Or maybe you do. God, help me to dismantle them. Bring other people into my life to help me walk this road to save me from myself. But then ask other people to help. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a counselor. I don't know. Maybe it's a mix of all the people you know, but you're honest with them and you're vulnerable with them. And you go, look, there are these things in my life that I see right now that I know are consuming me, that I am sacrificing relationships and time and my life at their altar and it is destroying everything around me. I need your help. Will you be my eyes and ears? Will you snatch me back from the fire? Will you hold me back from the line? When you see me going that route, will you speak truth into my life? Lean into spiritual rhythms and ask for help. When I was a kid, my mom bought me this book called Jimmy and the White Lie. Spoiler alert, it's about a kid named Jimmy and a, and a white lie. Jimmy broke a window at his neighbor's house playing baseball. And he gets real nervous and real scared, like a lot of us do when we make a mistake, right? And he, he's trying to figure out, what, what do I do, what do I do? And so he tells a little white lie. And when he tells that little, little white lie, this little creature just appears, It's cute, it's soft, it's cuddly, it looks like a cloud. And it's the little white lie. And as the story continues, Jimmy begins to realize he needs to cover up that lie. And so he begins to tell more lies. And and the lie begins to grow from this cute little cloud-looking creature to suddenly this monstrous, ugly blob of a thing that is taking up all of Jimmy's room. And Jimmy doesn't know what to do anymore. And I was thinking about it. Idols are the same way. They start off as these small, innocuous things that we don't think are a big deal. But they keep requiring more of us. And they keep growing, and they keep growing, and pretty soon they are taking up our entire lives and we can't see around it, we can't see over it. The only thing we can do is look through it and we view the world, we view ourselves, we view other people through our idols. And they take and they take, and they take, and they take, and they take until there's nothing left. 
Our idols will not give you fulfillment. They won't give you purpose that lasts. They won't give you the peace that you crave. They will just consume you. But we have a choice. That's the great thing about freedom, is that we have a choice. And ultimately, that choice is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and being the one that is worthy of our worship. God, I pray right now for anyone in this building, for those that are watching at home, for those that will watch in the future. (coughs) God, that you will burden our hearts, that you will open our eyes to the things that we have put above you, that you will surround us with people who will speak truth and love and grace into our lives and help us along the road. God, that you will protect our hearts and our minds from all the things, whether it's from our childhood or from our current circumstances or for things to come, to help keep us focused on you. That your spirit would burn the truth of the gospel into our hearts, that no matter how far we may feel from you, no matter how many doubts that we have, that it's you alone who is worthy of our worship. That it's you alone who brings us fulfillment, purpose, and peace. It's your holy name we pray. Amen.